It means I probably won't get the glorious sounds of you chewing, but I'll have my reactions to it. No, it's okay. I'm recording now. You can hear me chew. Oh. Which is weird, because it's pudding. I wouldn't really chew pudding. I would just hold the the glob in my mouth until it dissolved. Did I say it was pudding? No, I said it was cake. Don't be dumb. You're a really nice friend. I like talking to you. <laughs> I know you hate me, but out of obligation, due to our contract that we signed, you have to be my friend for a decade before you can uh, disown me. <sighs> Sorry. Well, I really wanted that Snickers bar, so it was worth it. <laughs> Joke's on you. It was a Mars bar. Ah, fucking Canadian candy. You were just really in college and didn't care to pay attention. It's fair. It seemed, most of my stories with you in Missoula, I was pretty in college. Mm-hmm. It's true. Mm. Yeah. Nothing like cake before dinner. Speaking of being in college. <laughs> no, not at all. Just, sure. a just a long day. I'm also drinking not your father's ginger ale. It's alcoholic ginger ale. Oh, I'm aware. I know what it is. Okay, well, I mean, it's brewed here in, in Washington, so how was I to know? Yeah, well, it, it has distribution. You've heard me talk about not your father's root beer before. I'm pretty sure I've given you one in my apartment. That's very possible. Hold on one second. These sound effects are really nice. She's attempting to change a tire. Sorry, who and a what now? Huh? Mm, didn't say anything. Certainly wasn't narrating what you were doing. <laughs> well... I'm sure that would have been entertaining. I was drinking a, uh, a healthy juice earlier, so I needed to, you know, balance it out with cake. There's no such thing as healthy juice. It's all just pure sugar. Well, no, Anne made it. It was like beets and carrots and ginger, which it tasted good, but I don't like when I can chew like my smoothies. I still think that juice is nature's cocaine, but you know what? Whatever whatever floats your boat, it's fine. Yeah. I finally got this microphone to work for my computer. It's been it's been a trek. I'm digging the angle. Yeah, it kinda looks like it's about to jab me in the face. Yep. Yep. I'm gonna have so I'm gonna have so many gags later because of this. We gotta turn video off. I can't yeah. look at you. That thing I know, I at so your stupid. face at that angle. Don't know. Just thank you. It's... Sorry. Uh, my mom walked in and just sort of shrugged like, ah, kids. They're they're clearly in college. Shoot for the top, always. You know you'll never make it, but what's the fun if you don't shoot for the top? Ursula Le Guin. Woo! Do you like that I just ignored you completely? I was like, I'm not answering this. I'm, gonna... I'm pretty used to you just ignoring me completely. Yeah. I mean, as you should be. Mm-hmm. It's prepared me well for having conversations with uh, bulldozers. Are you like that bird and are you my mother? <laughs> no, you are not my mother. You are a snort. 
Sorry. So what's new, Dan? What are you doing? What are you drinking? Tell since I'm not sure we were recording when you were saying what you were drinking. I'm having gin and soda because I'm trying to lose a little of my extra lovin'. And uh, tonic water is full of calories and carbs and sugar. And soda water is bubbly water with a tiny bit of sodium. So Yeah. I am a fan of the soda water. I'm reminded of Parks and Recreation when... Um, Chris Pratt lost all the weight, and there was a throwaway line where Ben asked him, so you just quit drinking beer? And he's like, yeah. And he says, how much beer were you drinking? And Andy just laughs. Yeah, I love that that's how they explain that their summer away when he was doing Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, you've been busy. I've been busy. We haven't talked in a while. Um, You worked 60 hours and also have like 8,000 projects. Hooray! Yay! I work 55 hours and have many projects and traveled. Did I tell you about my insane return trip? Like the um, fact that I ended up in San Diego? Yeah, I got a, I got some pictures and some texts, but mm. uh, that was the extent of it. But yeah, no, I we got stuck in Austin for like eight hours, nine hours. Uh, like not like stuck in the city, stuck in the airport. And then... A lovely man took pity on us and got us on a flight to San Diego so we could end up in Seattle late. But, you know, I, I, still, I still got, like, a half day's of work. I flew in at 10, went to work at, like, noon. Not bad. No, I mean, I was exhausted, but no, not bad. Not bad at What's all. What's the, uh, the Austin airport like? Um, it's actually, I really like it. It's, like, a really big version of the Bozeman Airport. So mm. it's nice. There's 24 or 28 term mom 24 or 28 terminals. 28, she thinks. Um, I think you probably mean gates. That's what I thank you. And probably one terminal because 28 terminals is more than they have at uh, LAX. Newark. See, this is the exhaustion <laughs> is still here. Um, no, no, no. I just really enjoy being technically correct because yeah. it is the best it, kind of correct. Yeah, you are an asshole. 20, 28 gates. There are 28 gates in the Austin airport. And uh, 24 to 28. Um, rough estimate. Uh, so, But it's like it's a nice airport. But, mm-hmm. like, security's not too bad. It's much... I, one thing we were realizing was it is much easier to get through security at almost every other airport um, besides SeaTac. Like, SeaTac... Really? I had a breeze at SeaTac. Well, you went in a good time. Like, if you're... And, little, I, was, and I was a little in college, so that Yeah, helped. you were... Thanks to me. Um, and you had a dog. So oh, like, my God. <laughs> we almost went five minutes without you getting credit for something. Whew, close call, Adair. What is with you today? Gin makes you mean. No, a lot of gin makes me mean, and that's where I'm at. I apologize. I gotcha. It's like it's like day three of me being in New York when you and I both just we like like being around each other, but we both need to be alone, <laughs> and we get increasingly mean to each other. But neither of us is offended because we're and neither of in the same place. And neither of us will say leave me the fuck alone for like five minutes. Well, no, but I just remember at one point you and Courtney were like, "Well, we should go and check on." dog i'm like why don't you guys go check on the dog and i'll walk around new york for a while by myself and i was like that's a great idea that's just fantastic yeah i'm 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 mostly mean from uh from sleep deprivation i um 
Deprivation. I like it. Deprivation. Mild, mild stroke. Um, but I, uh, it's interesting that, you know, you get tired from work, right? And then you get home and you're still tired, but you're not like go to bed tired. You're just tired from the day, but you don't want that to be all your day was. So you read something or you watch something or you write something. And then you still, you go to bed and you're just laying there looking at the steel, at the ceiling, exhausted, but I think you haven't, if I may be a poetic douche about it, expelled the demons of the day yet. So you haven't, you haven't written anything or talked to anyone in a way that gets the burden of living out of you. Yeah. So then you're just lying in bed and then finally you just have to pick up your phone or a notepad or something and just write for a little bit to just get it out so you can sleep. So you can embrace the tired. I I have been there, and that also is an excellent segue to what have you been writing? I've been doing, um, been writing a lot of notes for a novel that's been kicking around in my old brain for a, about two years. Is this the one you've mentioned to me, or is this a new one? It depends on what I've mentioned to you, but it's a it's a fantasy novel, um, but in a in a deconstructive kind of way, not like I view Game of Thrones as a deconstruction of Arthurian legend through the lens of the War of the Roses, and a shit ton of other influences, um, including H.P. Lovecraft and all kinds of random things. This is more like a deconstruction of the hero's journey in like the purest Joseph Campbell kind of sense of it. Uh, anyways, my whole thought was, what if the journey, the quest, and the outcome is nothing like you expected and it does not gain the sort of clarity and renewal and transformation that you hoped for. And instead, you're either right where you were or worse. And you don't become... Luke at the end of the original trilogy you haven't gained some new understanding and transcended a little bit and achieved something what if what if something really awful just happens and then you have to live with it and then you have to deal with that so it's it's a it's a dark fantasy that deconstructs magic and the hero's journey and just our notion of heroic tales in a way that's attempting to be honest and trying to interpret these broad general themes that have influenced for thousands of years at this point, going back to Hercules and Gilgamesh. Ah, Epic of Gilgamesh. Nice. Right? Yeah. I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to be that lofty with it while keeping it grounded and relatively practical, but I'm excited for you to read some of it. I'm going to say, 
I like I like the sound of this. I've committed to NaNoWriMo in November, National Novel Writing Month, and I'm, for that, are you doing it? Well, we discussed that like we're just going to piggyback on it and like write for thirty and make sure we write for thirty minutes for thirty days Absolutely. too. Because so I'm going to do that. I I would like to write a novel, but I think I'm in my brain is in essays right now, essays and poems. Word. Ugh, it's been like that for like a year. We'll we'll see if the novel ever comes. I found writing the notes and doing the research for this novel has. Hey, New York, what's happening? Right? <laughs> it's it's um, it's it's left me with a lot of novel ideas and a lot of actual essay <laughs> of like just writing about the ideas has led to real essay. So, question: so. Are they novel ideas or like oh, that's a novel idea? I know you. I know you would hit me if if I was in the room with you. You know uh, exactly what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I I did. Um, there's an interesting thing that I was uh, when I saw Ann Patchett a few weeks ago. She stated that we all have one story, and we tell it in different ways. But we have one story that we're telling, and we can rewrite it, and we can add new characters, and we can you know create new events. But when you get down to the bare bones, to that heart of your story you're always telling the same story. And hers is about a bunch of people that maybe in a different like existence wouldn't have ended up together, but they end up together and they kind of create a family through hardship and through you know the changes in life. And she was talking about how every time she writes a book, she's like, I did it, I cracked it, I, I've written a new story. And then she'll get down to the bare bones of it after she finishes reading it. And she'll be like, nope story's still there and she's like it's not a bad thing but we all have like that one story i think on a certain level that's that has to be true there's there are ideas there are types of people and situations that for some reason just boil out of us we can't help it yeah no and i mean that's i think that's a good thing like i think it's good to have you know your voice i think it probably as a creative person is going to frustrate me at some point when I actually, you know, complete these bigger works because I'll be like, oh, I feel like this is so repetitive. But it's not because there's so many different ways to tell a story. There's so many different viewpoints and, you know, paths to take. And so it's not that frustrating. But, like, the idea that you have no control over, like, this one story mm-hmm. and that it's just in your heart of hearts the story you're telling – that's an, it's an interesting idea, and I had never thought about it. But then I was, like, looking at Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility and, you know, like, Mansfield Park, like Jane Austen's novels. And they all have roughly the same story through great, you know, struggle and opposition. The heroine through her, you know, intelligence and her, you know, grace ends up happy. And normally that means married. So, I mean, I was thinking about that. I'm like, no, like, that's not the case for for all writers. But I was like, yeah, kind of is. It's almost like a favorite color. Like, you can't necessarily, you can say, oh, well, it looks good on me. Or, oh, I like it in art. Or whatever it comes from. Your favorite color is your favorite color. And you really can't fight that. It's just this visceral response that is kind of a part of you. And I think stories are the same way. Look at... Who has a large body of work? Stephen King. Stephen King's wrote over 60 novels. What are most Stephen King novels about? 
a single solitary figure, either a social outcast or loner, and their opposition to some dark, malevolent force, whether that is in the shape of a group or a single solitary evil entity or whatever various challenges. It's always a good versus evil story. Always, always, always. Stephen King doesn't write rom-coms. He doesn't write, you know, some sort of... Well, with the exception of Stand By Me. Damn, he's talented. <laughs> this is uh, Chapter 3, Stephen King. Pretty much. I, I, I got to see him speak last year, and it was awesome. It was so great. It was him and Peter Straub and um, his his son, Owen, and Peter's daughter, I want to say Karen. I don't remember. But all four of them are novelists. And so it was like a family business kind of, ha, 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 here's a panel of writers and their kids who are writers. But everybody was trying to be, like, really professional and well-dressed and look cool Except for Stephen King, who did not give a shit. You could have gotten his wa- his outfit at Walmart. Like, old man, white tennis shoes, crappy jeans, plain red t-shirt. And he was having so much fun. More fun than anyone. He did not give a flying fuck. And he was swearing up and down and telling all these stories about crazy shit that had happened to him. And he, you could tell, like, oh, man, this is a guy who found what he loves in life. And just lets that love just spill over in everything. He just loves this shit. That's how I feel about David Sedaris. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When he, when I, I've seen him talk, oh, what, four times? Something like that. He's one of those people that he can read the same stuff. And he, it's still, it's great. And his life is so interesting because he just says yes to the world. And he actually was talking about that. And all the weird shit he has for material because he says yes to almost everything. And I try and do that more now. I think for several years I was really, I don't know, closed off to that. And so I think that's a good way to live your life, to live your life through your passions and through just saying yes and. It's like life is just one giant improvisation. Yeah, hopefully if you do it right, it's a little more groundlings or upright citizen brigade than, you know, like kids in the hall or I I, I, I was going to dog on some other improv group, but I really like most improv groups. So You, you know what? It, I don't want my life to turn out like that episode of Broad City where uh, Alana is dating that guy and she goes to see his show and she has no idea what kind of show it is and it's an improv show and he's just <laughs> he's just awful and that's what I don't want my life to be I don't want it to be the episode with Hillary Clinton because woof oh yeah that was that was something politics aside She's more wooden than Pinocchio. Yeah, when she's like, I got this for office morale. It's like, oh, Hillary. Oh, hill dog. You you had two lines in the whole episode, and you just couldn't even... Nope. Cool. All right. Well, yeah, she actually, she did okay with SNL, though, when she played the bartender to Kate McKinnon's Hillary Clinton, though. She did okay. 
She did fine. Yeah, I mean, she better. was playing a bartender. She was basically playing herself. Right. Wait, she was I mean, playing herself married, and the other, too. Whoops. If you're married to uh, to Bill Clinton, you're basically a bartender, right? <laughs> Ooh, <Dang>. political. <laughs> Stances. No, I think it's good. You and I, we, we stay away from our political beliefs on here. No, I don't want to scare anybody off with my new age communist rhetoric. You are Just a commie. I am a commie. I do refer to you as my commie friend, Dan. Mm-hmm. So. Yep. I mean, it's just, that's just it. Um, and you're my apolitical friend, Adair. My, my undecided voter, Adair. <laughs> I'm not undecided. It's I'm a just, joke. I'm just realistic. <laughs> <laughs> In that all decisions are bad. <laughs> <laughs> I just get to a certain point where I'm just like, I'm like Eeyore. In Winnie the Pooh, that's the best way I can... That should have been my fictional character, because I'm just like, huh, okay. I appreciate that you said Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh, because I was like, oh shit, which Eeyore does she mean? Fuck off. <laughs> you can get bent. Like, ah, uh, which Bugs Bunny is she referring to? <laughs> shit. <laughs> Bugs Bunny is a little more descriptive. I'm, uh, you know what? Uh, it's been a week. I've, I've had a life going on, and um, I haven't. I've been in stasis. I, I know you have. Get one of those little Tupperwares that keeps you fresh. Um, I. That's me closing the lid on myself of my little self-sustaining Tupperware. That's my actually, world. That's. That's actually based off an episode of an old show called Eerie Indiana, which was like Twilight Zone for kids. Oh, <laughs> man, that show. I don't I don't know if anyone watched it but me, but it was one of those shows where after a certain point I was like, man, that kid's hair just does not move. <laughs> Do you like, remember Pete and Pete? Uh, of course. My favorite episode being the episode where uh, Pete, the little one, uh, is really into the inspector of his underwear and eventually gets him to come to their house and then he eats ribs perfectly but he doesn't eat them with his fingers and then they're like you can't be perfect because you didn't eat ribs with your fingers and then his life is just shattered i just wanted to ruin someone's life that way with ribs i just wondered even as a child i kind of had my producer hat on and i was like who approved a show with two ginger leads that doesn't have broad appeal and secondly who let that child get a tattoo? <laughs> it was a kid with a mermaid tattoo. That doesn't make a lick of sense. You know, when it came to Pete, there wasn't a lot of sense to be made. Pete, but on the other hand, you know, Pete pretty was, logical. Pete was a straight Log- shooter, that one. <laughs> yep. Uh, man, that was that's a complicated show. Part Just- of me thinks that uh, J.K. Rowling watched that show and was like, Weasley's done, got it. <laughs> One of them secretly had a mermaid tattoo that they never discussed. <laughs> but somehow in the Goblet of Fire, originally, they were, you know, going to try and infiltrate it. It was Percy. It was totally Percy had the mermaid tattoo. Wordstruck. Did Percy have a mermaid tattoo? Tweet us. Yeah, we, we, think, it's, we think it's true. Because, I mean, I think, there was a mermaid yeah. portrait in that bathroom. Mm-hmm. So. And mermaids in the lake. So. Well, yeah, but I mean, they weren't like they were like mer- they were mermaids, but they weren't like how you would see a mermaid. 
I like that by changing the inflection of my voice, I assume you know what I mean, but you know what I mean. It somehow just became a different word. Not a mermaid, but a mermaid. You have to make, it's like you can, the words sound like curves of a mermaid's body. That's, that's what it is. That this was got, beautiful. This got weird. So. No, no, so. no, but it's true. Like inflection is. It's part of it. It's a huge part of our language. You think? Sorry, but just... at the same time, like, <laughs> and I'm, it's true in other languages, of course, tone. Some, I mean, some languages are completely tonal. You speak down here or you speak up here. It's a completely different word. But it's true. I think only in a language as influenced by other languages and influenced by various different grammatical styles and vocabulary as in English could you possibly get such a sarcastic language no I, is there another language on earth that is as sarcastic as English French true but if everything is sarcasm is it nothing sarcasm we oui. <laughs> bitch <laughs> Man. Anyways, did Percy have a mermaid tattoo? Uh, word struck. Please tweet us at okay. slow underscore claps. Yeah. Just tweet that at us. Yeah. Let's let's have a question for each Secret Weapon podcast. So. Okay. So there's one. Um, what are we going to ask Disney Channel? Disney Channel. If any Disney Channel original movie character was to have a mermaid tattoo... Who would it be? Tweet us oh. at, sl- at at slow underscore claps. You know, it took me forever to know the Disney Channel Twitter, and I was giving up like the wrong Twitter, every- and it was a different Twitter every single time. And Anthony finally was just like, "Adair, that's not the Twitter." <laughs> Ooh, that's so, embarrassing. It's it's really not. Honestly, my life is bigger than that. <laughs> Oh, okay. I know, know. shocking, right? Uh, So, oh, I just kicked my mic. So, into the echo. Uh, Tweet us your favorite song about a mermaid. Or by a mermaid. Or inspired by a mermaid. It doesn't have to be necessary. uh, (laughs) I stopped talking uh, so you could talk. uh, uh, My favorite... Um, would be I Was a Mermaid and Now I'm a Pop Star by Rachel Bloom. Oh, God. I love her so much. I've never actually been excited for someone to win an award, except when Rachel Bloom won a Golden Globe last year for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Because I've followed her career since uh, Fuck Me Ray Bradbury, her YouTube video oh, yeah, a few years back. I watched um, that after I got really into her. Yeah, she's she's phenomenal. Everybody, that's my recommendation to you if you haven't yet. Um, and it's on Amazon Prime Music. Uh, but her album, Please Love Me, is God. fantastic. I love but her so much. You really, you gotta listen to it. Because there's some sketches on it too that it's it's very, very good. She did a really great lemonade parody in the new season of Crazy awesome. Ex-Girlfriend. Yeah, it's she's just like a cactus. Oh my god, it's so good. 
at one point they're like we used our whole budget for this music video daryl's now played by a broom it was so good uh yeah it was it was a it was a good it was a good time and i have scott joplin stuck in my head still because of that episode uh what should our mermaid themed question be towards 20 minutes of banter ah i did advantage (laughs) advantage top half mermaid or bottom half mermaid which which one is which one is superior and why that's that's an interesting question yeah but i'm sure austin will have an interesting answer yeah i mean if one thing can be said of austin it's that he's interesting floyd just barked at me because of that uh, okay, so, all right, so that mark will allow you to edit out all of those anti-Semitic marks you ju- remarks that you just had. So. Yeah, thank you. Thank, uh, thanks for you know keeping it hush hush, dude. Way to have yeah. my back. God. Well, I mean, you exclusively wear Hugo Boss, so <laughs> for those of you who aren't aware, Hugo Boss designed the Nazi uniforms. <laughs> It's a really bad joke, but also a really clever joke. So I just wanted to let everybody in on that. I feel like we should have uh, footnotes for our podcast. This is funny because if you have to have like 80 footnotes to explain why your podcast is funny, it's probably not that funny. Or you're probably This American Life. Oh! oh! Wow, there were so many spikes there. Speaking of footnotes, though, I will link in the video description... Well, not the video description because this isn't a video. Has about I will link in the show notes for this um, a recent episode of one of my favorite podcasts, What It Takes, which is interviews with people from the um, Academy of Achievement. Fantastic, fantastic podcast. But they recently did one with John Irving, who you know the world according to Garp and many other novels, but. He gave me fantastic writing advice that I'm currently following with this project that I'm working on, um, where he does not begin a book until he has the ending. Not a vague idea, not what happens, the actual words on the page. So he can write the final paragraph on a note card and tack it above his desk. And then the whole time he's writing, he is building towards that payoff. He is building towards that moment. Everything has to be in service of that. And that's how he writes. And I thought that was just super, super awesome. I like that. I should put that above... Hello, dog. I should put that above my desk. So, So have I talked to you about my theory about Westworld? No, I want to hear your Westworld theory so badly. I can't tell if you're being sarcastic right now. And it's kind of frustrating. Okay, I'm not sarcastic. I really like Westworld theories because it's early enough in the show that anything is possible. So I I looked, after I started thinking about this, I, I thought about it basically when Jimmy Simpson's character was introduced. Um, but it turns out a lot of people have the same theory. But I got really excited because so many people have had the same theory. And it's that Jimmy Simpson is Ed Harris's character just in the past like it's not these two timelines are not at the same time because hmm. i think how it's edited that it could work interesting so yeah but and my main reasoning why i started thinking it was 
in his introduction to the series, they there's such a point of him choosing his hat. Right. And so there's that. And then there's some shots in his episode where he's in the like center that mm-hmm. appear like some of the kind of ruins that are in the first episode. So hmm. I don't know. I feel like they're very cleverly editing it and that Ed Harris is actually is actually Jimmy Simpson, but older. Huh. I would have to analyze the Dolores moments. Yeah. Because it seems like her progression and her timeline is directly tied. See, I feel like they are really playing on us. They're they're doing certain things so that they're playing because I don't think everything is linear and I think they're playing on us to just like follow it like assuming it's linear. But hmm. with all these like flashbacks to her being talked to particularly, I feel like it started her like glitch. And so there are all these other things but uh, that are going on, but they are referring to them a little bit in some of the episodes, like how she is practically new because she's the oldest uh, host in the park. But that may be part of the reason why she keeps getting replaced is because of these glitches, but the glitches are actually because of these conversations she's having with the engineer. I don't know. This I, is this is a whole hmm. thing that I, I've been I've watched each episode like three times now to try and figure out if there's anything that negates my theory like seriously and not so far. I guess my the only thing off the top of my head would be that she is living out the same storyline for both Jimmy and the Black Hat. She is the rancher's daughter. She hasn't been repurposed. She's not in a different storyline. Which it would be possible that she is cycled back and they're recycling or they're too, they just have her in the same role some, I don't know, 30 years later. I but think that, that would be. I think awful. she might be one of the only hosts that isn't getting a new storyline. Because mm, they like talk, the ranch is constant. Yeah, the ranch is constant because you want that pull of the rancher's daughter. And she's like the, the you know, she's this temptation to stay in Sweetwater. But then they were talking about the whole reason for Teddy was to keep her there. And so it makes me think that she has been drifting a few times and that's why they brought Teddy in. But considering that her father hasn't always been programmed as her father. But she, she, she got prof- a new father halfway through, like the first episode though. So, I mean, they can switch out fathers and not switch out her. Right, but what I'm saying is if if that has come and gone, I just find it unlikely that she would have carried out the same storyline position over and over and over again for 30 years. That's a fair point. I'm going to I'm going to follow this theory at least until episode 5 and if something really pushes me to change my mind, I'll I'll change my mind then, but so far, I'm feeling I'm feeling like it's possible. I guess I didn't really consider it because I find uh, Jimmy Simpson really off-putting as an actor. I don't know <laughs> why. It's he's not bad. He's not untalented. There's just something about him that I just I see him and I'm like, ugh, this guy. I'm actually really happy to see him in a role where he's not just a weirdo. 
I'm excited to see what he does because maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's that he always plays a weirdo. Like if you think of House of Cards, always mm-hmm. sunny. Like he's always like sunny. Wrecked him for me. Oh, it's I'm totally like, ugh, true. Ugh. it's so true. Um, but I mean, even in he was in an episode of How I Met Your Mother, and it's just like even then he was like kind of a weirdo. And so, yeah, it's. I think it's because he's always playing weirdos that I'm excited to see him as like the leading man because. I think he has some really good acting chops, and hmm. he, I think he's a he's an interesting actor, and I'm excited to see what he does because I like those non-conventional actors, like sort of changing the dynamics. And mm-hmm. so, I I don't know, I, I root for the underdog when it comes to that. But speak- I'm enjoying Westworld. Oh, I me think too. it's great. I um, think it's really as long as they don't drop the ball. I think it's going to be great. I think it's. I think it could be Battlestar Galactica good if they do it right. I think I'm gonna be rewatching that with Anne. Mm, sounds fun. like sounds like bonding. Um, speaking of TV shows, though, my recommendation to you is the new season of Black Mirror is up on Netflix, and yeah, I mean, I have almost deleted my Facebook three times this week. <laughs> Because I'm just like, this is what it's going to be. I'm going to care about people rating me. What the hell? I don't want this. This is not my life. Um, It's so good. I loved the first two seasons. Some of them are really hard to watch. Uh, Like the series premiere? Yeah, which Anne actually gave me the best note when it came to watching Black Mirror whenever, like two years ago or a year ago when I watched it the first time, was she said, skip the first episode. And then go back to it after you've watched, like, the other two episodes in that season. That's probably good advice. I couldn't get, I, like, I heard the premise of the pilot, and I was like, I I don't want to watch that. Yeah, so the first one I watched was, I think it's, like, called, like, 10 Million Merits or something like that. And that's Mm -hmm. the reality TV show one. And then I watched... Be Right Back, which is, has Donald Gleason in it, and Haley Atwell, and... That episode wrecked me. I've watched it since then, and that episode makes me sob. It is so... There's a scene... I don't know if you've watched this episode, but there's a scene on a cliff, and Mm -hmm. I was just sobbing because it's just heart-wrenching, and it's this idea of, like, you know, also artificial intelligence having feelings, and but it's just... it's, It's too much, but so good. And I started watching the new season this weekend, and Bryce Dallas Howard is in the first episode. And it's it's weird, but it's really, really good. Like, she does a really great job. Um, it's all about how people rating you and you having a ranking in the world based on how people rate interactions with you. Wow. So, so it's about being like you want to be a 4.0 to a 5.0. Mm-hmm. And if you're below, uh, and if you're below a certain amount, like doors won't open for you, and you don't, and it's you don't get like preference in lines and you, you people it's like having bad credit like people won't you know help you with things it's such a it's such an interesting premise and then i've watched two more episodes and that's been my this is this is my nightly ritual this week is watching hmm. black mirror so it's real real hunky dory happy times but yeah watch it it's great we'll do my recommendation to you is this is such this is such bullshit. Um, reread Oedipus. <laughs> uh, the, no. Seriously, no. The Thebian plays. I'm working my way through them again. Um, I 
Yeah, I have a real interest in rewriting the whole trilogy for a modern audience, incorporating more of the mythology and like streamlining the narrative so it's less... Now I'm going to have some exposition to all of the chorus that's here. And I can't believe this thing is going to happen. I think somebody hears somebody approaching. Yes, I hear someone approaching too. Is someone approaching? Enter somebody. Like, breaking it away from that sort of classical Greek theatrical tradition. Anyways, I have a selfish interest in it. But in rereading it, I'm like, man, this is the archetype. It still is, to this day, of tragedy, of true tragedy. And it's uh, it's rewarding. It's rewarding to just, you know, you can read it You can read it in an afternoon, and it's worth it. Um, yeah. I've been enjoying myself reading it and earmarking and underlining and highlighting things where I'm like, oh, my gosh. It makes you feel real pretentious in Starbucks, doesn't it? Well, if I went to Starbucks, it would, but I'm too cheap for that. Yeah, let me know if you want some help with that because I've read those. I've read so many Greek works, like reread and, and reread because of how my liberal arts uh, schooling. I went. Mm-hmm. I started doing a lot of courses in like Greek mythology and just Greek, and to the point that I almost tried to learn Greek and Latin. Nice. And uh, yeah, so I've I've read the Iliad more times than I will ever want to read the Iliad to the to the point that once I was reading it on a beach and I threw it <laughs> because I was so done with it at that point. Fair. And also the Iliad just kind of sucks and I was I was the little kid who loved Greek mythology so much that when Hercules came out, I spent the whole movie in the theater tugging at my mom's sleeve going that's not right that's not how this is supposed no that's not no that's not when he strangled no that's not how he beat the no that's not and my mom finally was like dan it's a movie and just kept kept watching who are these women singing they didn't sing i was like wasn't Hera also kind of his aunt because she was zeus's sister she's like why did i let you let you read that book (laughs) you're six you obviously shouldn't be reading that pretty much Maybe I was seven when that came out, but yeah, I was like, they've really condensed his 12 labors into one big musical number. I know, also, isn't that great? he never went mad and killed his family. What's that about? Yeah. It is literally my favorite Disney movie. The but entire yeah. soundtrack, I, I, I love it. The the story, the humor, I just imagine Phil. You, <laughs> I just imagine you waking up every morning singing, I can go the distance. I have sung it on more than one occasion, not always drunk and not always crying, but still. At karaoke a few a few weeks back, my my friend, one of my friends, sang "I Can Go the Distance." It was good. Well, whenever I come to visit you in Seattle, we will go to karaoke again. You will invite that friend, and I will sing it in a manner that will make them hang their head in shame. I don't know. He sang it so well. Like, he is an amazing singer. Like, I've, I have I respect you as a singer, but he also is an incredible singer. We need to change the subject for the sake of our friendship. <laughs> okay, sorry. No, uh, no, it's fine. It's fine. Just, you know. You know, for the sake of our friendship, tell me about something you've worked on. I would love to hear you read something. I want to hear that melodious voice in action. Don't you butter me up. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I'm leaning um, back. I'm ready for this. Uh, just on a podcast note, I, I kind of want to, I wanted to read a poem this week, but I also want to, in an effort to keep it interesting, because we write a shit ton of poetry. It's true. I want to not read a poem. So this is the beginning of an essay, and I hope the next time it's my turn, I'll probably read uh, an excerpt of some fiction or something. So you're going to be better than me, because I'll be not doing that. No, you've got you've got short stories, you've got essays. Don't act like you've got some hilarious tweets that you could read, like the one about my neighbor's penis, because that was a great one. No, I didn't. As a man, I found it really offensive. Oh, really? My no, bad. I found it. I found it hilarious as a person. The term warrior poet has always bugged the shit out of me. What the hell is that supposed to be? Some badass, sword-wielding murderer with a sensitive side? Is it a renaissance man? Dealing death in iambic pentameter? In what world do the murderers also paint the masterpieces? It's not a balanced state. It's internal contradiction. You can't be an artist and an assassin. So you pick. You pick warrior, or you pick poet. You can chase some idealized world that turns within your mind and try to will your art onto the world. You can write your play or paint your canvas or sing the song of your beating heart. You can try to be an artist, but the warrior doesn't die. You still have a duty-bound killer inside you. And if you pick the warrior and try to find the honor in your life, try to make the discipline and the hardness and blood a part of something greater than yourself, you can be the guardian of truth and justice. And if you fight in the mud with bullets and bone until you're old enough to run the whole damn army, you still have an artist inside who only wants you to explore the pain of beauty in the broken world you have tried to conquer. Being a warrior poet isn't an oxymoron, nor is it an impossible romantic idea or an invention of those unschooled in war. The warrior poet is the curse of an incomplete man who will never truly be free. A knight errant and a starving artist, neither one to be fully realized or totally forgotten. I got a snap for you. Appreciate it. So one thing I have to say is, if you ever read this, try and make sure a siren goes by while you do it because it is actually a really beautiful combination of what you're saying, having this very well-spoken piece and then having chaos behind it. I really, it actually worked very well for it. Uh, nice. I'm, not, I'm not sure if it's going to pick up as much on the recording, but it was very cool to listen to in my big-ass headphones. <laughs> so I have to say, when I read this uh, earlier today, I I love these 
these contradictions. Like, I love this idea of the artist and the assassin. And I don't know why, but I started thinking about people stabbing other people with paintbrushes. I'm not really sure why. And I also tried to figure out where the term warrior poet came from, which, because I, I did love the visual the visual pieces you put into this essay. I really like it a lot. And so I was very curious, but I can't actually find, and maybe it was because I, you know, was half-assed Wikipediaing it earlier today, but I couldn't find why that terminology came out. But I think mm-hmm. it's it dates back to the Greek poets is what I'm getting, which makes sense if you think right. about the people that wrote at that time. Everyone was a little bit, uh, a little bit of a warrior. Um, and a little bit of a poet. <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a whole lot into gladiator sandals. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, there was, I was, what was the piece? I'm looking through it. You can write your play or paint your canvas or sing the song of your beating heart. You can try to be an artist, but the warrior doesn't die. You still have a duty-bound killer inside. And there's something about singing the song of your beating heart and a duty-bound killer being inside of you that felt very right. And I have to say, like, there was something about where the more you wrote about it and how it's a contradiction, how you wrote about it, it made sense that someone would be both a warrior and a poet and how you can be creative and an assassin at the same time. And you could probably be an assassin with your creativity. Yeah. You can kind of kill an idea dead or you can make it grow. I mean, not to be all gender pollicky, politicky about it. Pollicky? Politicky. Um, But there is this, I think the nature of masculinity is in a lot of ways tied up in that dichotomy of warrior poet. And it's that sort of thing that I think especially guys struggle with um, throughout your life of that sensitive side, that innate connection to artistic endeavor or creative opportunity or whatever. And this, visceral primal warrior side and balancing the two and picking one over the other and how they express themselves is the struggle of a lifetime and it's something that only in the last like six months i've really been able to put words to but the more i've been looking at it and the more i've been focusing on it and trying to put words to the experience the more it's kind of brought my whole life into focus and which times I was being more of a warrior, and which times I was being more of a poet, and which times it was a hindrance, and which time it was a benefit. And it's a, it's been a very unique and interesting lens in which to view my life retrospectively and to try and gain some depth of insight for moving forward. No, and I really love it. And I think by discussing the contradiction, it feels almost like you're making a, I mean, it feels like you're making a valid point in favor of, you know, not being one or the other, but being both, though it is life in itself is a contradiction. And we as humans are, are just constantly, you know, living, breathing contradictions. So I, I do love this. This is not a side of you. I necessarily see you always seem so very confident in, in who you are, whether you're, you're the husband or the friend or the writer or the singer or the actor. Uh, 
you know, a lack of confidence, a need to defend who you are or your place in the world has never seemed like something you needed. So it's a very interesting side of you because I see that there's an internal struggle, but that's not something that having known you for this many years now, I would have assumed. But I think it just goes to show sometimes we'll write things that we don't feel as comfortable acknowledging outside of writing. Whew! Got you fooled. Confident. Hilarious. Well, um, no, no, it is that interesting sort of like, like part of it goes to like the reason I changed my name. Like I didn't like what my old name stood for or, you know, I wanted the chance to make a new identity for myself. And there are things in my past, both specific instances and ideas and relationships and all kinds of things that I don't care for. Not that I want to sweep anything under the rug, but I, there's always been a conflict within me between who I am to the world and who I feel myself to be. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, the beginnings of a more in-depth analysis of that. And sort of when I, it's interesting as I look back at things I've written, it's it is sort of a, this constant. You know, you talked earlier about having one story. I think my one story might be the struggle of being who you are to the world and who you are internally, specifically through the male heroic lens of like, what is this traditional Western mythology, folklore, fairy tale hero? Why have we striven towards that as you know, men, and what does it actually look like in practice? And what does that leave us with? Does that actually accomplish anything? Does that build towards anything? Does that make the world a better place? Is it necessary? Is it important? What does it really mean? And why have we been reading these stories and watching these movies and believing in these things for so long? And what have we missed? And what can we gain from really examining this stuff? So... That's kind of where I'm, well where put. I'm coming from. <laughs> no, well, very well put. Uh, you got, you made it all, all heavy and serious. Now I can't, can't make any jokes. I just don't even know where to go from here. I, oh, no. you can always make jokes. You could be like, not, and then just, and then you edit it so you could end the podcast. <laughs> just go fast. Yeah. Uh, no, I think I think these are lovely points, and it's interesting to see. I continually learn more about you through what you're writing and when we had a blog together that was one aspect of it but that kind of limits what we're writing about Mm -hmm. and so I like this I love this sort of learning and you know I share a poem you share an essay or fiction and maybe I'll share an essay like I think there's things that we don't always share as openly but it's good to do that. I feel like there's a catharsis in it. And I, it was interesting what you said about your name because I, I, we talked about this a few months back that I was contemplating changing my name, not my first name, <laughs> but my last name, mm-hmm. uh, because of reasons involving my relationship with my father. Uh, but Anne made a really good point for me in that my reasoning wasn't necessarily how you were feeling about who you are inside is not who you feel like you are outside. And for me, it was that I didn't like this connection 
And I didn't, uh, but Anne made a great point for me that the reasoning I was doing it was not to lift myself out of something I felt was imposed by the name, but imposed by a person who shared this name. And particularly just that relationship, it was more like running away. And she made a good comment of, you know, make your last name great again. Like, Hmm. you know, make it something that you'll be proud of. Because the fact is, it's also some amazing people in my life's names. And I think that it's a good point and kind of brilliantly put that you share your name with a lot of people, people you aren't immediately related to even. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not an uncommon name. Not especially, but, you know, I was born Dan Miller, so <sighs> I see even your dogs know it's generic. They're like, boo, boo. Oh, um, Natasha. Oh, shit. I'm going to say, I'm getting Natasha Coates. I'm going to say it wrong. Natasha Coates? Do you know Natasha Coates? I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm saying it wrong. I, I let, let me, uh, give me a second. Taneshi Coates. Not, not. Oh. Ten- okay. I just put, I took the tut and stuck it in the middle of his first name, like an asshole. Um, Taneshi Coates, you know, he's written for The Atlantic for a long mm-hmm. time. He's a journalist, but he's writing Black Panther right now, yeah. the comic book, not the, not the film, um, and killing it. And a, I'm glad doing, to hear that. Yeah, and doing so in like a, everything you would expect from him based on his journalistic writing, like very socially conscious, very much talking about the black experience. It's very interesting because Wakanda is not in America. So he's talking about like, in some respects, black Camelot, like shining city on a hill, African nation, extremely technologically advanced. In a lot of ways, Wakanda is black Camelot. Um, which I think sounds like a fantastic name for a 1960s black exploitation film. <laughs> but he's doing fantastic work and really, I, I really like his trajectory coming from writing about things he really believes in yeah. and covering important things into fiction. And yeah. it adds, it adds this layer of credibility that I think straight fiction writers never really get until they've had years of public exposure and a lot of, I don't know, interviews and just different ways to express their opinions and beliefs for the public to finally be like, oh, you're more than just a spinner of yarns. You actually have a head on your shoulders. Whereas this guy, immediately from issue one, everyone was like, oh, well, this guy really knows what the hell he's talking about. Let's see what he does with a fictional narrative. Yeah. Well, that sounds so. interesting. Way to nerd up the podcast. We, It was, it was pretty... Uh... It's pretty calm there for a little bit. No, but- I tried with the with the Greek stuff, but it just wasn't nerdy enough. It was too classic. I mean, yeah, you, yeah, it was all educated. Um, it was <laughs> it was kind of geeky, not nerdy. Kind of Greeky. I can't believe I didn't think of that. Oh, uh, outpunned. Sleep, sleep deprivation has taken its toll on me. Um, on that note, you should read the Beautiful Struggle, which is his book. Um, mm-hmm. It's very good. There's I, I'm reading a few books such as that and super good. Uh, I'm mixing it up because I needed some I needed a change because I'm reading the signal and the noise, which 
It's a lot of statistics. I mean, um, you got the signal. And the noise. And you got the noise. I mean, ugh. Yeah, it's it's something. I mean, they already brought the noise, and you were expecting the funk, and instead but you get the signal. signal yeah. It, yeah. It's, it is something. But, Dare, who's... Uh, Whose career do you really envy? Like, who would you murder and take over their life? I would say uh, Tom Hanks. <laughs> really? Well, I would really love to be Tom Hanks at this point because I'm just like, dude, you're doing it still. Like, everyone loves you. Right? Uh, and it's just like, there's something about the, like the idea of being America's dad. I'm just like, you're just, you're owning it. I'm pretty sure everyone's collective parents went and saw Sully. <laughs> yep, I did like he, him on SNL reprising his role of Sully uh, with Alec Baldwin uh, <laughs> as as the pilot. Um, so yeah, him. I'm really I on the note of Westworld. Jimmy Simpson's career has I started kind of IMDbing him a bit more and. Because I know him from his like important like big, big story roles, but he has a really interesting career, and he's gotten to do a lot of fun things, and he's now getting to do some bigger things, and that's very cool. And he's he's very humble about it, which I like. It's he's got kind of that Lin Manuel Miranda thing where he's sort sort of like in awe of the fame, so that's very cool. But honestly, after watching. My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend Season 2, Episode 1, Rachel Bloom. Like, without... Oh, yeah. Rachel Bloom. Like, I mean, those two are, like, the runners-up. But, like, right now, Rachel Bloom is on this role. And she's so weird. And she owns it. And I love it. And brilliant. Can we just say that? She's she's so so fucking smart. Oh, my God. Yeah. And there's just, like... Can't even stand it. And, like, it's, like, diabolically smart sometimes. Where I'm just like, oh, my Mm -hmm. God. You're Like, guys on the Harvard Lampoon. Look like a bunch of drooling idiots compared to her. It's true. Her comedy's that smart. Um, yeah, and I love it. And I like so far where season two is going, and that makes me. I'm. I'm excited. I mean, well, I like part of where it's going. I. I will state that I have never been a Josh, Rebecca fan. I don't. I don't know who is. If you are, I'm not. I'm not big on Rebecca. Yeah, I. I mean, like, yeah. Rosh? Rosh is a better shipping name. I'm not big on Rosh. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm just not... Josh Chan. I'm not into him as a character. I feel like everyone else kind of acknowledges their flaws, and he really doesn't. And he is the most stunted person in that show. And I like Greg for the fact that he he definitely acknowledges his flaws. He may not change them, and he may, like, anger through them. I'm a much bigger fan of Greg. Yeah. The name of Rush. Oh yeah. I, these both sound like you have gotten some sort of disease and you've WebMD'd it. Like that's what it sounds like. I got it. I got, I got it. the reg. I got I, the reg. I man. got the reg, man. Oh man, it's a uh, it's an off it's an off swing of uh, scabies. Well, I'm going to um, abruptly shut you down with uh, a surprise attack quote. Oh God. That- I saw this and I couldn't help myself. It was too perfect for everything we talk about. Okay. And it's uh, in honor of my homeboy, Bob Dylan. No! The the uh, <laughs> Nobel winner for uh, 
you know, advancements in literature. But who's to say if he actually knows, because he is still not answering the Nobel Committee's calls, which I think is actually kind of badass. I think it's fucking amazing. <laughs> oh, but, man. Okay. Great Bob Dylan quote. I've re- recently been re-listening to the Bootleg series, and it makes me so fucking happy, especially in the fall. But a great Bob Dylan quote. He said once that a poet is anyone who wouldn't call themselves a poet. Well, I'm fucked.